Welcome one more time to the Elm City Vineyard. Um, my name's Matt, um, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I one thing you need to know about me at the beginning of this talk is um, I am an unapologetic Bible nerd. Like, like I mean, for real. Um, that, that it goes deep. Um, uh, I ended up with a PhD in Bible. That's what happens when you keep asking the questions and you don't stop. Um, but I. I, I love the Bible. Um, I have been uh, recently, um, my, uh, I'll, I'll spare that story, but recently I've been starting reading the Gospel of Mark um, with my daughter um, in the evenings. Um, I know we're reading the Gospel of Luke this summer, but the Gospel of Mark, like, is, is my jam. Um, in my, uh, my very first Greek New Testament, which I realized I left in my office, which I haven't been in for like 18 months, but it's there. Um, you can actually, you can like pick it up and look at it edgewise and you can see where the gospel of Mark is. Cause like the papers are like dirtier. It's like, it's got like tree, it's like tree rings, right? Of like where I've spent extra time in the gospel of Mark. Um, and it's been amazing to share with Junia so many important passages and lessons that have um, that have changed the course of my life. And I have to admit, I mean, those, those have been, like, the main things, but it's also been great just to share with her, like, just, like, some, like, Bible nerd things that I love, right? Um, I mean, look, the m- number one most important thing about the Bible is that it is a place where God hangs out with us, right? That's, that's, that's why I love, that's why I love the Bible. My father-in-law wrote in the Bible that he gave me, this is a, uh, like the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Bible under one cover, a gift from one Bible nerd to another. But in, in this Bible, in the dedication, my father-in-law wrote, um, may this be, may this be a tent of meeting for you. Right? Sinclair gets it. Um, may, may this be a place in which you meet face-to-face with God. And that is what this book has been for me. Um, that's what's most important. But I also have to admit, I, I just love the Bible. Um, the, the, the ways that its various stories sort of weave together, the way that there's always more whenever you go back to look again. And that also has been happening as Junie and I have been reading in the evenings, even in the pages that I've read to the point where they're a different color than all the others. Sometimes those little Bible nerd moments are just that. But I think God actually hangs out in those little nerdy corners, too. And just when we're geeking out over something seemingly small or clever or just flat-out beautiful, God shows up. And so today I want to share with you one of these new things that struck me over this past year while I was uh, working on a book on the Gospel of Luke. An advanced warning, it's it's a bit Bible nerdy, um, but I, I really... I think it's really cool, um, it, it elegant even. And, and on the back end, I, I think that God actually has something really important for us, um, for our lives as well, something to help us in our summer quest to behold the kingdom by coming to understand who the anointed one of the kingdom, who Jesus actually is. But all, it all begins with this cool little thing in the beginning of Luke chapter 9, um, this is going to be the Bible nudie part, but it's going to be great. Um, most of the first half of Luke 9 is, is a story that might be familiar to you. I'll read maybe the most important parts, um, but maybe you'll know it. Um, the feeding of 5,000. 5,000 hungry people, Jesus feeds them. But before and after that story, we get these sort of twin passages. Let me, let me read them for us. So first, in verses 7 through 9, it says, 
Now Herod, the ruler, heard about all that had taken place. Jesus had been healing people. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John, John the Baptist, had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the ancient prophets had arisen. Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he tried to go see him. All right. Then the feeding of the 5,000, we'll come back to that in a second. But then after that, in verses 18 through 20, it says, Once when Jesus was praying alone with only the disciples near him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, Well, John the Baptist, but others, Elijah, and still others that one of the ancient prophets has arisen. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Messiah of God, the anointed one of God. Hopefully you see what I mean about these being twin passages, right? Herod wonders who this guy Jesus is, and it's told to him that uh, either John the Baptist or maybe Elijah or one of the other ancient prophets. Jesus asked the disciples who, other pe who people are saying he is, and they report the same. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah or one of the ancient prophets. And when Jesus asks the disciples, though, who they say he is, Peter actually is able to do a bit better. Jesus, uh, Peter says that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one of God. You see the pattern? Right? You've got this like word on the street, then the miraculous feeding happens, and then Peter is able to piece it together. Jesus is the Messiah. Somehow, the story in the middle clears up something crucial about Jesus' identity. But how? Here's the cool part. It's all the cool part. The story of the feeding of the 5,000 explicitly describes Jesus as very much like John the Baptist and the ancient Hebrew prophets. In the story, Jesus is just like John the Baptist. He's gathering crowds out in the wilderness, large crowds. I mean, if you squint a little, in fact, it raises the question for me, how did those crowds, when they were out meeting with John, how did they eat? I, I don't, anyway, but Jesus is doing the same thing that John the Baptist was doing, gathering crowds out in the wilderness. And it, it, I mean, it doesn't take much. But if you squint just a little bit, he, it, this looks just like the ministry of John the Baptist. And it's the fact that they're out in the wilderness that sends the disciples to Jesus to ask him to send the people away into the various little villages nearby to get them something to eat. And then we get to the meat of the passage. But Jesus said to them, you give them. You give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and, and uh, made them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And all ate and were filled. And what was left over was gathered up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now that part of the story sounds quite a bit like any number of miracles from say, the time of Moses, manna, and quail in the desert. If you don't follow this, that's okay. But if you do know these stories, it sounds maybe a little bit like Moses. Maybe it sounds like a story from the time of Elijah, the miraculous flower and oil that fed the wi widow at Zarephath. All right, that's, that's a deeper cut. Um, but 
But it is just like, I'm going to read it in a second. It is just like one of the stories the Bible tells about the ancient Hebrew prophet Elisha. And this is one of those little connections I had, I had never made before. Listen to this story from 2 Kings 4, verses 42 to 44. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing food from the first fruits to the man of God, to Elisha. 20, 20, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give it to the people and let them eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred people? So he repeated, give it to the people and let them eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. He set it before them. They ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. All right, com come on. Some of you, <laughs> guys, this, uh, this is the best Bible nerd payout. <laughs> I, I've been hyping it up. But like, like, that's crazy, right? Like, that is, that's on the nose, right? Here's the point. Word on the street is that Jesus is probably either John the Baptist or one of the ancient Hebrew prophets raised from the dead. That's what's been going around. So Luke tells us a story that basically auditions each one of these possibilities, right? Jesus is gathering crowds in the desert like John the Baptist, so you can see why people might, might make that identification, but John the Baptist gathered crowds in the desert, but he never fed them miraculously. Jesus feeds people with what seems like it could possibly be, uh, it couldn't possibly be enough food, and there are leftovers. And that is exactly like Elisha. But first of all, I mean, we can do some math. Elisha feeds 100 people with 20 loaves. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves. Jesus wins you know, on the loaves per person ratio. But... More than that, the story about Elisha is careful to attribute the miracle to God and not to Elisha. Elisha explicitly says, this is what's going to happen, thus says the Lord. Jesus performs this miracle on his own authority. So is Jesus like John the Baptist? Yeah, but not only. Is Jesus like one of the ancient Hebrew prophets? Yes, but not just. Jesus is more than either of these. And this passage auditions each of these options in framing the conventional wisdom and shows each to be insufficient. And it's all enough to give Peter a hunch, which if you know anything about Peter, a hunch is plenty to make him bold, to go ahead and give the answer, you are the Messiah, the anointed one. It's elegant. I mean... Just give me a little, just, uh, just give me like nod service. Okay, all right, good, good. It's elegant, it's elegant. It's, it's, it's in the commentaries. <laughs> you can go read them. I didn't discover it. Um, it's elegant, but it's so beautiful and balanced. And this is the sort of stuff just makes me like geek out. But, but what does it mean? <laughs> so I was like, I was like, oh man, I got this like, uh, uh, truth in advertising here. I was supposed to preach this Sunday. I was supposed to preach next Sunday. And when I got asked, like, could you move it up a week? I was like, no problem. I got this one in the bag because it's just this really cool thing with, like, Elisha. And it's, it's going to be great. And then I sat down and thought about it. I was like, oh, no. I have no, I mean, it's really cool, but I have no idea, like, why, like, what it means for us. So um, why does Luke want to make sure that we don't mistake Jesus for John the Baptist or one of the ancient Hebrew prophets? 
In other words, the first thing we got to know is what would it, what would go wrong, or what would we get wrong about Jesus if we reduced him to one of these other characters? Warning, further elegance. Well, Luke, I mean, come on. It turns out that each of these two options actually are taken up just prior in chapter 7. When it comes to John the Baptist, Luke recounts Jesus, Jesus trying to help the people understand what this whole John the Baptist buzz had been about. I mean, he was, he was, John the Baptist was like all the rage within a certain community. Um, and he's trying to help them understand what, was, what it was that attracted them to John and what the limits were of his ministry. It says, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Answers to all these questions are no. Um, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who, uh, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. Yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So John the Baptist is a prophet, Jesus says, but even he's more than a prophet. He is the one sent to prepare the way for the anointed of the kingdom. So don't get caught up in John because the kingdom of God is the point. That's what Jesus actually, if we read the whole story, that's what Jesus is proclaiming and demonstrating out in the desert when 5,000 folks end up in need of a meal. John the Baptist, like, like he's, the, he's the man, right? Like he's like chief among humans, but least in the, in, in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. This is important because remember John the Baptist's message. His message was repent, turn away, turn back. But turn toward what? He was deliberately like, sort of like, there's one coming. It's sort of like space holder, <laughs> like what to turn toward. I take it that we get Jesus wrong if we think he's just John the Baptist, if we think he's calling us simply to leave but have no idea where he's inviting us to follow. And I feel like I have some personal experience with this danger. I spent the better part of a decade of my life following Jesus as if he were John the Baptist, constantly inviting me to, re to repent, to turn away, to leave everything which I had given my heart to that was not worthy of my humanity. And I'll say this a few times in a moment, but like that was a good and important, really important thing in my life. But at that time, I had no idea what it was that I should invest my life in. And it was exhausting. I knew what I was against, but I had no idea what I was for. And in its own way, my life built on rejecting an elite and elitist life of the stereotypical Yaley only served to train my attention back on exactly the sort of deficient visions of greatness or success or whatever it was that had brought me to Yale in the first place. I'm giving shorthand for a long story. But that, that's what happens when we know what we're against, but we don't know what we're for. It reminds me of a moment that my friend James uh, found himself in. Um, James was a bit of a car guy. Um, he had always wanted to have a really nice car that would show everyone um, that he had sort of made it in life. That he had like, like he had a nice car. Um, and he started following Jesus 
And he had this, this sort of like, I mean, as they say, a come to Jesus moment where he was like, you know what? My cars are cool, but it probably shouldn't be what my life is about. And so he then set about driving like the worst, ugliest, like rust bucket he could possibly find. Right? And I remember him explaining to me at some point, like actually confessing to like a group of us at some point. He's like, guys, do you see how insane this is? Like my self-worth is still tied up in what kind of car I drive. I've just flipped around which sort of car I'm proud to drive. Because I only know what I'm against. I have no idea what I'm for. And I think we can follow Jesus like that. We eventually started to, to, we sort of came clean with one another, like in our college fellowship. Like we had, we had been following like half the gospel, the, the gospel of leave, without thinking about who we were following. And it was, it, was, it was half of the gospel, and it was an important half, a half that I still need, frankly. Right? I, all of us, we need to prepare all the things that John was telling people to do. We need to prepare. We need to be ready. We need to repent. There is so much of which we need to repent. But as Jesus says, just two chapters after this passage, when you cast out a demon, if you don't replace it with something else, like it'll just come back, and it's going to end up being worse. It's not enough to know what you're against. You also need to know what you're for. And the feeding of the 5,000, I take it, shows us what the other half of the gospel is. It's life in the kingdom. Abundant provision from God's hand, the community of the crowd gathered to eat, a far cry from the send them away with which the disciples began. This anointed one is the one who does not send us away because we're needy or because we're not self-sufficient. This anointed one gathers together those who have need of him. The sick who need a doctor, as we noted a few weeks back. And here they are. Rich and poor, sinners all gathered together, belonging to one another. They ate, the text says, they ate and they were satisfied. And that can simply mean that they were well fed and it means at least that, but it can also mean more than that, that they were satisfied in their souls. This is the picture of the kingdom of God we get again and again in the Gospels. Rich and poor sinners all gathered together, sharing a meal, belonging to one another. Now, as for the prophets, their reputation too comes up in chapter 7, twice actually. In both cases, the people understand prophets simply as wonder workers. They're just people who do miracles, right? So like in uh, Luke 7, 16, after Jesus raises a widow's only son, the people respond, a great prophet has risen among us. They're not talking about the, the dead man. <laughs> They're talking about Jesus. Um, that'd be kind of cool though. Anyway, in, in Luke 7, 39, we don't know what happens to that guy, that guy. Anyway, in Luke 7, 39, a Pharisee who has invited Jesus over for dinner is skeptical when Jesus isn't squeamish about um, interacting with a woman who is bathing his feet with her tears. He, s- he says to himself, Luke tells us, if this man were a prophet, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Now, it turns out Jesus is a prophet. And he knows, he knows this woman a lot better than the Pharisee who invited him but not her to dinner. 
And so G- is Jesus a prophet in this sense? Yeah, I mean, in that story, he immediately just, he responds to the thing that the Pharisee had been thinking. All right, prophet, check. Is he a wonder worker? For sure. And feeding the 5,000 only secures his place more firmly in that, in that category, right? Like, he, he dropped Elisha's, like, you know, um, like, loaves to people ratio, right? Like, by, like, several fold. But Jesus is more than this. And let me tell you, I have also experienced the weakness of letting Jesus be reduced to being just a wonder worker. Just someone who can heal the sick. I have been in, I have been, I, I have at times in my life actually felt like because if, if that's really just who Jesus is, then I don't know, maybe I don't, maybe I don't belong. Maybe I haven't experienced enough healing in my own life. Maybe I haven't seen God do enough miracles in, in, in my presence. But even more than that, I th- I th- I, I've been a part of communities that as, as we start to think more and more about, about the kingdom of God as being this, 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 um, this whole other way of, 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 the, of the world working, this alternative sort of scheme that sort of bursts in in moments and upsets the way that the world naturally works, I've started to start to think that, well, the anointed one of the kingdom must be sort of like other than the one who, like, created all of this. Other than the God who, like, created this beautiful world and set us up in it. Who has good intentions for us. Look, we, we need Jesus' wonder-working power. We need it because it takes us out of the center, right? <laughs> that's, that's where the Apostle Paul leans most of the time. You need, you need to know the power of God because then you know it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about, it's about God. That's central. We need Jesus' wonder-working power because it reveals our dependence on God. And we need it because we have needs in our lives and in the world that we simply can't address on our own. We, we need physical healing, emotional healing. We need a timely wor- word of encouragement from the capital O outside, from, from a source that uh, can only be God. And thank God that Jesus, the miracle worker, is still at work in our midst, translating the compassion of God into miraculous changes in our bodies, in our hearts, and our minds. But if we let the kingdom of God be reduced to just these miraculous incidents, then we have sold the kingdom short. And we've misunderstood the identity of the one anointed to one day be king of this kingdom. Because the kingdom surely is not less than miraculous healing, spiritual deliverance, and prophetic words. But it is surely more as well. It's transformed relationships. It's justice. It's reconciliation. It's the whole world set right. And so at the end of the day, John and the Hebrew prophets both do the same thing. They point beyond themselves and toward Jesus. So Jesus is John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness. Jesus is Elisha providing food for the hungry with plenty left over for others as well. He is all these things at once and more. This is just what happens to our language when God starts to reveal God's self. God takes up our language, fulfills it, and in fulfilling it, overfills it and overflows the bounds of our language and as a result every statement of who Jesus is is a statement of who Jesus is not because it's also a statement of who Jesus 
exceeds. Every declaration of who and what he is is a declaration of who and what he exceeds. And even when Peter says that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one of the kingdom of God, sure, this means that Jesus is God's anointed, but we could keep going. So was David. To truly know Jesus as Messiah, we have to say more than this. Jesus isn't just an anointed one. He is the anointed one, and as such, he is, isn't just God's anointed. He is himself God. And trying to come to know God just does this to our language. Our language is fulfilled in being overfilled. And these signs, all of them, weave together a tapestry of identity markers and build upon and point beyond themselves. They surpass themselves in becoming what they most truly are. And this, as we said a few weeks back, is the truth of the kingdom. The truth of the kingdom of God. I'm going to steal a sentence from my friend Ryan McAnally Lins. I think I got this right. That every created thing is fully itself only when it is more than just itself. That every created thing is fully itself only when it is more than just itself. And the kingdom is that, pl- is that place where where everything becomes fully what it is and the creation becomes fully what it is and being more than just what than just itself. Only when bread is more than mere bread, when it's received as a gift from God, as Jesus acknowledges when he gives thanks before distributing it to the 5,000, when it's shared as a site of nurture, nourishing mutual encounter, only in that moment is it truly bread. Only when fish are more than mere fish are they truly fish. Only when I am more than merely myself when I am my grandmother's son, the truth-telling inheritor of all that God has done through and in spite of my people and my history, only when I am fully present human member of the ecological system in which I live, working and keeping in the place where I am as the garden that God first planted our ancestors, only when I am my neighbor's true friend, one who listens and hears what God is saying through my neighbor and acts with courage, so that my friends and my enemies can become fully themselves and becoming more than merely themselves. Only when I am more than merely myself am I fully myself. And the same is true of you. The same is true of us. This is the kingdom of God. Every piece of God's creation become most fully itself in becoming more than just itself. Every person, every culture, every people, every nation, every critter, large and small, every forest, every river, every mountain, every ocean, fully alive and fully thriving in right relationship with God and through relationship with God with one another. It's the whole world as God created it, is redeeming it, and will be drawing it finally together. This is the kingdom. It's what Jesus Christ, the anointed one, has been commissioned to call forth, weave together, and build in our midst. This is what we're hoping to behold, catch a glimpse of, begin to to have our hearts captured by this summer. This is why we come to the table, rich and poor, sinners all, 
to be to belong to one another, to be with one another in belonging to God. <laughs> 